Hi, this is Pastor John welcoming you to our broadcast. You know, we've all asked the question at one time or another, what is God's will, or what should I do? Well, we're going to find the answer to questions like these, or at least the start of one, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2, in a sermon called Our Walk. This is part two of our new series, What's Love Got to Do With It? like you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to go through verse 5 through uh, chapter 2 verse 2. Let me read this passage. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word of God, brothers and sisters. I frequently have people come up to me and they're looking for pastoral counsel. They want to know what to do. They might be a little confused in a tough situation. And they say, what is God's will? Now, we've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it again. And, and, and the real question is, what should I do? What should I do? I, I got to be honest with you. I have to ask that question myself every now and then. I don't always know what to do. Do you? Yeah, sometimes we're kind of like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Well, how do we even get started on what the answer to that question might be? We're going to look at that today. Uh, this is part two of what's love got to do with it. And I'm calling this sermon, Our Walk. Now, last week we heard that Jesus is life. And that was an important message for John to convey to his readers. Uh, he's writing to a church that is divided by false teaching. There's some confusion running around here. People are probably wondering, well, what should I do? So he starts out simple by saying, it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. Now, that's something we're familiar with here. Amen? John and those around him are firsthand witnesses to Jesus and to his ministry and all of the things things he taught. And there were these false teachers running around And they've distorted everything Jesus said and did. But just to keep it simple, what they've done is they've turned his teachings into a man-centered teaching instead of a God-glorifying teaching. So John made this proclamation. uh, and And he says, we've been with Jesus personally. And that he, John, writes this letter to them to revisit the fundamentals 
of what Jesus taught him. He said, let's go back to the basics. Now, now John's going to start going a little bit deeper into what all that teaching meant and what it means to all believers in Christ. Meanwhile, we're going to get a couple of glimpses at what these false teachers were, were saying to lead people away from the truth. So John wants his readers to walk in truth, not deception. He wants them to hear the whole gospel, not just part of the gospel. He wants them to live like people who know and understand their scriptures and begin to apply them to their lives. So, so he's starting out with the basics. He says, let's just start with the fundamentals here and, and things that you should know as a Christian. And these basic truths are a guide to our walk. So in, in today's passage, we have three basic truths. We have the fact in verse 5 of chapter 1. We have the fruits in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. And then we have the forgiver in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. So let's take a look at this fact. Verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, we kind of take this for granted. I want to do a deep dive on it. Uh, John reminds his readers, first and foremost, that he's received this directly from Christ. We are getting, when we read this, we are reading first-person witness to Jesus Christ. Speaking back to us from over 2,000 years ago, John's saying, I was there, I saw it, I heard it, and let me tell you something, God is light. I like that phrase. But let me tell you, it, it, it meant something different to a Jew in the first century than it does to us. Let me, let me try and explain. Back in an earlier life, in another career, I used to work in malls. I would go open up stores. And they sent me to East Cleveland to open up a store in this mall that when I walked in, I went, oh my, where have they sent me? Now, the funny thing about the mall was, out in the parking lot, you know how big parking lot malls are, every light in the parking lot in the mall except one had either been shot out or stoned. There was one light in the parking lot, and I worked long days. So I would park my car under that light. Now, I guess it made me feel safe, or made me think that maybe if there's light here, nobody will, will, will bother my car. That lasted about a week until somebody shot that one out too. <laughs> but see, a lot of us think that that's kind of like walking in the light. There's a light shining down upon us, and we can see and feel secure. It's hovering over us, and it illuminates us. Now, there are several extra biblical sources, including some some writing from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that portray followers of God as followers of righteousness. Watch this. They call them the followers of the light. James calls God the father of lights in James 1 verse 17. And in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So that light the, the, the fact that God is light is pretty well established, but this is more than just light shining down upon us so that we can see in the dark. To the Jew, he sees and hears the contrast that we see here is valid. As righteous as the light is to his readers, the darkness is to evil. 
What John is saying is, is that God is pure. God is holy. There is no evil in him, no darkness to dim his holiness, to taint his purity. This is a fact. It's a bold biblical truth about God. It's not up for debate. It's not subject to analysis. It just is. And so when John says walking in the light, he's talking about something totally different. We'll get to it in just a second, but I want you to hold on to that. John wants us to know why it's important for us to know that God is light. So he begins to describe the results of this fact that God is, is light and that we're walking in it. And here they are. They are the fruits in verses 6 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Listen carefully. I told you this is about more than walking in the daylight. This is about walking in who Jesus is. Who God is. Yeah, yeah, we know. We know that when you come to Jesus, you see things a little bit differently. Scripture becomes more clear. In that respect, we are indeed illuminated by the light. We have more light than we can see. But walking in the light is walking in His character and nature. The word for in here is not directional. It, it's, it's almost like a state of being. John is not saying walk toward the light. He's saying, walk with the light, walk in the light. He's saying to be in the light, to rest in the light, and really to abide in the light. The main idea is to be walking in a manner that is in harmony with who Jesus Christ is. Walking in holiness, walking in purity, Walking in fellowship and union with him and communion with him and everything that he teaches. You see what John's doing here? See, you're not walking. Those of you that are struggling with this teaching are not walking in harmony with everything that Jesus Christ teaches. If we say we're doing this while we walk in darkness while we walk in the character and nature of evil. In other words, if we say we're Christians, yet live like unregenerated, untransformed people, if we walk like everyone else in the world walks, then John says we lie. He says our lives are a lie. When we say we're one thing, and we live like we're another. Now, this isn't an accusation he's making. It's a statement of truth. It's not so much, if you do this, you're a liar. It's, if you do this and call yourself a Christian, you're not. Implications on this are eternal. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So on the other hand, if we walk the way Jesus walks, if we try to live like He did, then we walk in fellowship with other believers, the body of Christ, with each other, and our sin, our sin is dealt with by the work that Jesus did on the cross. It's covered. 
Now, in order for us to be cleansed, listen carefully, this is just, we're not passive in all this. We must repent. We must repent. In order to repent, we have to realize and admit that we're sinners. Well, that sounds simple, doesn't it? But to say to yourself that I live in opposition to God, not always so easy. And we have to be careful about it. Because if our mind starts playing with us, and we start saying, oh, that sin wasn't so bad, certainly not as bad as that over there. Lord, thank you for not making me like that sinner. I'm a much better sinner than he is. Let's be careful with that. We have to be careful with people that tell us that we're not sinning. Look what verse 8 says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And we've got to read these verses carefully, and we need to put them in the context of why John wrote this letter. He's writing directly to the church. I've, people have told me, oh, this part is written to unbelievers. It's to the church. He's trying to pull the church away from false teaching. And maybe right here, we get a hint of what some of that false teaching is. Apparently, some people are telling folks that believers don't sin. John says that's, that's a false teaching. And it's a dangerous one as well because verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So saying we don't sin is a sin. Oh, And it requires confession. It requires repentance. It required now now repentance is not oh I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> repentance is not gee I feel bad that I did that. Now that's that's a, a an element of repentance, grief over what we've done, but true repentance requires a change of behavior, a change of heart. Saying, I'm sorry I did that, I couldn't help myself, kind of indicates that, well, I might do it again. So maybe we can't stop ourselves all the time, amen? Maybe sometimes the temptation is too great. We gotta wanna, we gotta have a desire to change. We got to listen to the Holy Spirit in us saying, don't do that. You know, we, we have all these debates about free will. We got it. We have free will, don't we? I mean, I could step down this step. I could step up this step. God lets me do that. God also lets me suffer the consequences of my own decisions and my own actions. So when the Holy Spirit says, don't do that, we can say, no, I'm going to do it anyway. And then, and then we'll tell them all the reasons why. You don't understand, Holy Spirit. They made me mad. 
You don't understand, Holy Spirit. I was in a hurry. And that person slowed me down. You don't understand, Holy Spirit. I don't really think God's sovereign. I'm going to do things my way. Isn't that what we do? So repentance brings us to that point where we realize that the thing that we've done begins to hinder the communion with our Father that we need so desperately, and it needs to be fixed. We desire to be closer to Him, so we repent and then ask the Holy Spirit for help in changing our behavior. And in order to do that, we have to understand that we're not holy. We're not perfect. We're not sinless. And if we do that, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, to wash that unrighteousness out of our lives. In other words, when we do that, we are reconciled to God. We're brought back into a deeper relationship with Him. When we repent, our relationship to the truth is reestablished. And then we're walking in the light. We're walking in the character and nature of Jesus Christ. We're walking into that which we are being molded and conformed to. John goes back, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. God, I don't know if you want to be in that position. (laughs) And his word is not in us. So if we insist that we're not sinning, we're not in the light. That's not the character and nature of God. We find ourselves accusing God of being a liar. I don't believe that verse. I don't agree with that verse. I don't agree with that passage. I don't agree with that theology. I don't like the idea that Jesus is the only way to God. So I'm just going to say that all faiths are sincere and anybody can get to them. Isn't that calling God a liar? I mean, if we believe that these words are really inspired by God and we disagree with Him, aren't we saying, I know the truth and God doesn't? Wow. Or if we say, I would never do that, I would never sin. Inspired Word of God says you do. What do we do with that? And it's a letter written to believers, not unbelievers. The letter written to the church, a church that is struggling with false teaching. So the remedy to all this is to repent. Do you you see, when we talk about the fruit of walking in the life, that's the fruit of walking in the light, repenting from our sin. Jesus says to do it daily. Doesn't he? When he instructs his disciples to pray, one of the things they are to ask is, and forgive us our sins. Luke 11, verse 4. Take a look at it. Why would Jesus ask us to do that if we weren't sinning? The prayer there to pray. Whenever they pray. Pray this up until you get saved, and then you don't have to pray it anymore. He's talking to his disciples. They've already bought in. They've already begun following them. And when that happens, the prayer of repentance comes with a promise. I love this. Because it's not just repent. There's a promise linked to repentance. And we see that in the forgiver. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, we've got to be careful here. 
John kind of has his tongue planted firmly in his cheek. He's not saying that a sinner can avoid sinning. I mean, really, think about it. He just said that we're lying if we say we don't have any sin. John's saying this is what Jesus taught. Indeed, Scripture tells us in other places, not just here, that sin is in our nature. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We all have the same nature as Adam. We all have that tendency to sin. And the only remedy, the only sure thing is Christ. Yes, we are being transformed. Yes, we have a new heart. We're becoming new creatures. But if we're honest with ourselves, and if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we know that that transformation in us is not yet complete. We're a work in progress. The great thing, the great news for us as believers is even though we're a work in process and the transformation isn't complete, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of who? Christ. Not ours. So we're assured of our place in heaven. Our salvation is secure. Meanwhile, there's a lot of work to be done in our hearts. And when we run around saying, I'm not really sinning, I'm perfect, I don't have to worry about this, I repented one time, I never have to do it again, this passage says we're lying. Oh my gosh. You know, I I love this because Paul goes through this amazing transformation. Early in his career, you know, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle. I'm yeah, and, and, and next, I'm an apostle, just like the other apostles, you know, same as them. And then he goes to, yeah, I'm Paul, the chief of sinners. And finally he ends up saying this in Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 7. It's one of his last letters written around 62 AD, probably the year he was martyred. He's in a prison in Rome. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's lifetime wisdom rolling out of him here. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I love this. This is Paul. The apostle of apostles. He's at the end of his life. He tells Timothy, bring the books. You better come quick, though. (laughs) And so he pours all this out. Everything that's happened to me, I count as rubbish compared to what's coming. But then he lays this on in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul, the apostle, was not perfect 
at the end of his life. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. At the end of his life, Paul says, I'm not perfect. He still had flaws. He still sinned, perhaps daily. He was not perfect, brothers and sisters, and neither are we. Neither are we. The blessing we have as believers is that Jesus Christ has paved the way for our sins to be washed away. And that is by repenting. Repenting in our daily lives. Now, now John's got that established. He's pretty confident in it. Now he gets down to business. It's impossible, if we understand our nature, for us not to sin. So, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the word for advocate here is a legal term. I kind of like these legal terms, but we've got to be careful with them. It describes someone who comes before a judge on behalf of the defendant, someone who pleads the defendant's case and represents him, stands in his place. And we need to think about this. Because when we start throwing around legal teams, I might be aging myself here, so excuse me, I start thinking about Perry Mason. Some of you think law and order. Okay? And we can easily be reminded that Perry Mason, the people on the TV shows, they were the good guy lawyers. They were right, mostly. They win almost all of their cases. I mean, you know, they wrap it all up in 47 minutes. But, but look, look at how our eternal advocate Christ is described. He is the righteous. In this case, it refers to the one who has perfectly conformed to the commandments of God. That's certainly none of us. None of us have been able to do that. Psalm 14, 1, second half of the verse. There is none who does good. And it kind of shows up again in the second half of verse 3 of Psalm 14. There is none who does good, not even one. Oh, John, that's the Old Testament. We all know that doesn't apply to us. Well, Paul picks up on this idea in Romans. Only he makes it clear that the psalm is talking about everyone Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. Romans, what then? Are the Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everyone's sin. It's written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God so much for the seeker movement. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So there's only one who is righteous, and that's Jesus Christ. And he pleads our case before the Father. And the difference between him and Perry Mason is that Jesus is perfect. Jesus is holy. And as the Bible tells us, is one with the Father. Do you understand this? We have a perfect representative the perfect advocate who goes before the judge on our behalf. And not only that, not only is he standing before the judge on our behalf, he is one with the judge. Oh my, this gets amazing. See, an earthly lawyer may lose a case every now and then. Amen? 
But Jesus pleads our case and gives us a promise. We will be judged innocent and acquitted. And it's based on who He is, not on who we are. Based on what He's done, and praise God, it's not based on what we've done. Okay, what has He done? Verse 2, His propitiation for our sins. That's a great word. (laughs) That's an amazing definition, though. And let me give you the technical definition. It means to appease wrath and the gaining of the goodwill of an offended person, especially with respect to sacrifices for appeasing angered deities. Now, that's a general definition of propitiation. What it means is that our sin as believers earns the wrath of God. Scripture's clear on this. And what Christ has done is he's taken that wrath upon himself. Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 And then we've all sinned. Romans 3.23 So we've all earned death We've all earned the wrath of God, but for those who believe in Jesus Christ, He paid the price for us. And now stands before the Father as our advocate, saying, their price has been paid in full. I went to the cross for them. And then the Scripture says, and not for ours, but only also for the sins of the whole world. price has been paid for Paul, and his readers. You know, this verse is a little problematic. I might get technical with you for just a moment. It seems to indicate that Christ died for everyone. And that would remain a problem if we were to just take these phrases isolated from everything else. It's always a mistake to form our beliefs around one or two verses or phrases without taking the rest of Scripture into consideration. So what do we have here? When a passage is not as clear as it could be, then we have to rely on those passages that are clear in order to interpret it. Furthermore, world as it's used in Scripture can confuse it even more because it can mean all of creation. It can mean the entire world. In a lot of cases, it means more than a particular group. So frequently when the world, when, when the Scriptures speak of the world, as compared to the Jews, it's talking about people from other nations other than the Hebrews. And I think think that's what Jesus is saying, what what John is interpreting here in in John's gospel, in John 10, 16, where Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So clearly not everyone is in Jesus' flock in the high priestly prayer. He says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for the ones you gave me. But his flock is not limited to just the Hebrews. There are people from all over the world in his flock. Now, this was an important message to the Jews in the first century, because up until then they believed only Jews and people who converted to Judaism could have a relationship with God. And when Jesus taught that salvation was for all nations, that it was for all peoples, 
That was so radical that it really made everybody mad. Almost everybody. So the rest of the scripture makes it clear that not everyone is saved. Those who reject Christ are sent to the lake of fire, whatever that is. And so it's best to interpret our passage today as saying that the propitiation that Jesus made is good for all who are saved, even Gentiles. Oh, we need to think about this. Then we go, oh, those silly Jews. Don't we think that only people like us are going to get saved? Don't, don't we, aren't, aren't we, aren't we comfortable with that? I've said this before. They're going to be every political party in heaven. <gasps> yeah, just think about how we do this, okay? Don't we think that our particular doctrine on baptism or communion or whatever is right and everybody else's is wrong? And we think that if somebody does this over there, well, they must not be saved. They're not like us. That's the mistake that was made in the first century, and they missed the Messiah. So that caution rises up out of these pages and lands right in our lap. Be careful that you're not excluding anybody from the gospel. And we're talking about anybody. Oh, my. What about those people I really don't like? So we see that the forgiver, the one who forgives, Jesus Christ forgives all those who repent and believe in him alone for salvation. So there, we we saw the fact God is holy, God is pure. While the text says there's no darkness in him, we should hear what the Jews heard. There's no evil in him. There's nothing unpure, unholy, or imperfect in him. And what that fact produces in believers should be the fruits. Now, there are a lot of fruits in the life of believers. There's not just one. But John is zeroed in on repentance here. Uh, And without which, we can't be restored to our relationship with the Father. It's a beautiful gift of grace. If you search the Scriptures, you'll find out something really amazing about it. It's a gift that's granted by God. Talk about that over lunch. We saw the forgiver. Jesus is the one who forgives. Uh, He will forgive all those who repent and confess him as Savior. The great news is that his propitiation doesn't stop at the point of our salvation. It continues to work in our lives as we continue to sin, and we will continue to sin until we stand in glory. We're still covered by God's grace. You see how these simple truths can become an anchor in times of confusion and doubt. When we begin asking the question, what is God's will? What should I do? We go back to the basics. The ones that Jesus clearly taught and that John is conveying, that God is light. He's not darkness. God is truth. He's not confusion. He'll bring us to repentance, so we should examine ourselves at that point. Not others. Don't look at the people around you and go, well, that's their problem. They made me do this. They made me feel that way. It's their fault. It's not my fault. We should examine ourselves and repent and confess our sins and be restored to a right relationship with our Father in heaven. And once we do that, (laughs) 
This is the beauty. Once we do that, we're forgiven. We don't have to carry that burden anymore. We don't have to deal with that guilt anymore. We're forgiven. Jesus paid the price. Jesus took the wrath. How many times have we wondered whether or not God's mad at us? Whether or not we've been removed from his grace? And when we do that, all we are really saying is that, well, Jesus paid the price, but it wasn't enough to cover this. I've got to carry this alone. Once we repent, we're forgiven. We're justified with the Father. Now, we're justified, but we're not perfect yet. There'll come a time because of what Jesus did on the cross that we'll stand in glory with the Father. And all these issues, all this pain, all these struggles, and every tear will be wiped away. Praise God that he sent his only son to pay the price for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for clarity of thought here. We give you thanks for everything that you've laid out, Lord. Your character and your nature. The fruit of your character and nature. The capability that you've given us to repent, Father. And the promise of forgiveness when we do. Lord, we not only rely on that, we desperately need it. So we pray that your spirit would move in us, Father. Draw us unto you. Conform us to your image. Bring us another step forward in our sanctification today, this week, Father, as we put our eyes upon you. We pray that you bless all this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.